Today we are beginning a new worship series. It's entitled Facts, F-A-Q-S, and during August we're going to be looking at frequently asked questions by Christians. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus said, If you ask, it will be given. If you seek, you will find, and if you knock, the door will be opened. And the act of asking, seeking, and knocking, raising those questions also strengthens our faith. And in the coming weeks, we're going to explore questions like, how can I know God's will for my life? Do miracles still happen? And what's heaven like? But today we're beginning with the question, how can I know that I am saved? Our scripture lesson comes from probably my favorite chapter of the Bible. It's Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 12. Listen closely for God's word. Therefore, brothers and sisters... We have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you can live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering, in order that we might also share in his glory. Amen. In the classic movie, Forrest Gump, Tom Hanks plays a simple country boy from Alabama, and there's a scene where Lieutenant Dan sarcastically ask, have you found Jesus yet, Gump? And Forrest looks quite confused and replies, I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him, sir. Well, the reality is we all need Jesus, but oftentimes we get the process backwards. We don't find Jesus. Jesus finds us. Our Savior seeks and saves the lost. And even our response is a gift of grace as we are saved. But today we're dealing with the question, how can you know that you are saved? And in theological circles, that is known as the doctrine of assurance. Let's begin with a very fundamental understanding of salvation. There is something inherently wrong with the human condition that the Bible calls sin. Sin is more than the sum total of the bad things we've done or the good things that we have left undone. Sinfulness is a separation from God. There's a chasm that exists between humanity and the divine that we cannot bridge. But Scripture shares a story of how in Jesus Christ, God acted once and for all to bridge that gap. And at the cross, the power of sin was destroyed. At the empty tomb, the power of death was banished. And when we enter into a relationship with God, we receive forgiveness of sin and the promise of life everlasting. The Apostle Paul summarized that salvific event when he said that salvation comes by grace through faith. That salvation, right relationship, is grace. It's God's gift. It's not something we earn or merit. And even the receiving of grace 
by faith is also a gift from God. And then we discover in our lives, as well as watching others' lives, that salvation is both event and process. There may be moments of transformation and change which are dramatic and radical, but much of the Christian life is lived in between those milestones in slow, incremental moments of change as we are sanctified and become more and more like our Lord. But still the question remains that we're looking at today, how can you know that you're saved? In response to that question, when you look at the church traditions, there are two different extremes to that response. The first extreme is to say, you can't know. You can never be certain. You can hope, but you can't be absolutely convinced. And in such a scenario, we're reduced to plucking flower petals and saying, God loves me, God loves me not. Reader's Digest published a story. A woman wrote in and said she'd been dating this very timid man for a long time. And he was so shy, she had finally given up hope he might even propose. And one day, he invited her over to dinner with his mother and the rest of the family. And after dinner, he said to the woman, what did you think of my family? And she said, oh, well, I like them very much. And he said, well, they liked you very much as well. In fact, some of them wanted to know when we were to be married. Then he paused and glanced at her and said, what should I tell them? Nobody wants to live with that sort of timidity and uncertainty. We become like school children writing to God, do you love me? Check yes, no, maybe. And it robs us of an inward joy and of an outward witness. Now the other response is the other end of the extreme, and this is my own personal estimation, sometimes people are a little bit too sure. They treat salvation as if it's a fire insurance policy for hell with a one-time premium paid. And if you ask them to tell you something that's happened in their Christian life recently, they will look at you with confusion and say, well, I took care of that when I was a teenager. I haven't had to worry about it since then. And sometimes we talk about once saved, always saved. To me, salvation is not a binary yes or no. It's more of the language of relationship, a beginning a relationship with God, but then growing into it. For example, suppose that you came to church one Saturday and attended a wedding. And afterwards at the reception, you approached a groom or a bride and asked the question, are you married now? Would they answer, I don't know. I think so. I hope so. But can anyone ever be sure? Well, of course not. They have been through months of dating, through an engagement, making all the plans, getting a license, going through the rehearsal, the service itself. They could say with a fair amount of certainty, I am married. But if you are married, you know the wedding day is just the beginning it's the beginning of the relationship. And every day you've got to fulfill those vows for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, sickness and health, to love and to cherish, till death us do part. It is event and it is process and it is relationship of drawing closer to one another in the good times as well as in the bad. 
That's the type of relationship we're called to nurture with God. That God wants an ever-deepening relationship with His people. And Scripture talks about how we can have an assurance of that relationship and of salvation. Listen to a couple of verses. First of all, from 2 Timothy. Paul wrote, I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard that to which I have trusted to him until the final day. Then in Hebrews, we hear, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance of faith. There's a word that is extremely important in Scripture, and it's translated in English as know, K-N-O-W. But in Scripture, no, is not just an intellectual knowledge, assurance, or assent. To know someone means to be in a close, intimate relationship of both knowing and being known. And consider that definition when you hear these familiar words from 1 John. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in God's presence whenever our hearts might condemn us. Today we read from Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. In Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible called The Message, he puts part of this passage in this way. The resurrection life you received from God is not a timid, grave-tending sort of faith. It is adventurously expectant, always asking God, what's next, Daddy? God's Spirit touches our spirit and confirms who we are. We know who He is. We know who we are. We are father and children together. And we know we're going to get what's coming to us, an inheritance that is absolutely unbelievable. Because you see, ultimately, our salvation is based upon God's promise. And that's the assurance upon which we can rest. When I was serving First United Methodist Church of West Point, one day one of the mothers came in and was telling me about coming upon her child in the backyard. And she had a daisy flower and she was plucking the petals like I was talking about earlier. But she had her own version of what she was saying. Rather than, he loves me, he loves me not. She was plucking the petals and saying, God loves me. God loves me lots. That's the doctrine of assurance from a childlike faith to know what you know, what you know. And it's an emphasis of the Methodist movement. John Wesley talked about the importance of assurance of knowing our salvation and of our relationship with God. And he based it on scriptures like, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And Wesley talked about there was a dual witness that was involved in the doctrine of assurance of God's Spirit corresponding with our spirit. First of all, God's Spirit testifies in our life and reminds us the first and last word of salvation is always grace, of a gift given to us. And if you delve too deeply into John Wesley's works, I must say it gets a little bit confusing to exactly discern what he means by the witness of God's Spirit. The clearest way he puts it is this. The testimony of the Spirit is an inward impression on the soul, whereby the Spirit of God directly witnesses in my spirit that I am a child of God, that Jesus Christ hath loved me, given himself for me, and that all of my sins are blotted out, and even I am reconciled to God. Wesley said that 
testimony of God's spirit has a corresponding testimony in our own spirit. Because remember, salvation is relationship. And therefore, we ought to be able to look into our own lives and see growth and maturation and change. And if you look back one year, five years, ten years, and you are no different now than you were then, something is wrong. But as we grow in faith, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, becomes evident in our lives. It's a little bit of a superficial illustration. But let me put it this way. Suppose you were brought to court with the charge of being a Christian. There would be three testimonies. There would first be my own testimony who I say I am, who is my Savior, who is my Lord, who have I pledged my allegiance to. Then, there would be the testimony of my family, friends, co-workers, fellow students, who do they say that I am? But then there's a third testimony. John's Gospel in the Greek calls him the paraclete, the counselor, the advocate, the attorney who stands on our side, the Holy Spirit who claims us as God's own. And you can see the power of the doctrine of assurance in John Wesley's own life. And that's much more than just some theological abstract. It has the power to transform and change. Maybe you've heard the story of John's life before. He was born in 1703, the 15th child to Samuel and Susanna Wesley. His father was an Anglican pastor, so John Wesley grew up as a PK, a preacher's kid, in St. Andrew's Parsonage in Epworth. When he was six years old, a fire broke out in the parsonage, and everybody escaped except for John, who was trapped on the second floor. And the neighbors formed a human ladder and rescued the child And Susanna wrote in her journal that he was a brand plucked from the burning for a special destiny. By the time Wesley was 11, he could read and write English, Greek, and Latin. He went on to Oxford College where he studied for the ministry. And he was joined by his brother, Charles. And together they formed what some called the Holy Club. Others called them Bible Moths. And they ridiculed them and made fun of them. And they had a little poem which said... By rule they eat, by rule they drink, by rule they do all things but think. Accuse the priest of loose behavior to get more in the laity's favor. Method alone must guide them all, win themselves Methodist, they call. Then in 1735, Charles came to his brother with an exciting opportunity. General James Oglethorpe was going to the new colony of Georgia. And Charles had signed on as his secretary, and John was offered the position as chaplain. It was supposedly an exciting moment where he could go and evangelize the new world. But it turned out to be an utter failure. The other settlers found John Wesley off-putting, reserved, and cold. The Native Americans were not interested at all in the gospel proclamation, at least the way he preached it. And then the 32-year-old minister began to date a young teenage girl, 15 years his junior. I'll save you the math. Sophie was 17 years old. They finally broke up, and three days later, she married another man. And when they came to church for the first time, Wesley, in a fit of jealousy, would not serve them Holy Communion. And so Sophie's father swore out a warrant for his arrest. 
And Wesley went up to Charleston and set sail back to England with the law on his heels. And in his journal, he wrote, I came to save the Indians who will save me. But despondent in spirit, back in England, one evening, he went very unwillingly to a Bible study on a street called Aldersgate. And someone at the beginning stood up to read Martin Luther's preface to his commentary on Romans. I don't know if you've ever read Martin Luther's preface on the commentary on Romans. It's so dry you could start a fire with it. But something happened. And Wesley wrote in his journal, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And here was a man who had been raised in a pastor's home. He had gone to seminary. He had been on the mission field, but it wasn't till this moment he got it. And he understood the gospel of grace. And that spirit of assurance transformed his life. It transformed the Methodist movement and England and the world. And that same promise of assurance is offered to each and every one of us. Because it's all about grace. We don't ultimately find Jesus. Jesus finds us. And based upon God's promises in our lives, we can know what we know, what we know, that we belong to God. And we can sing with certainty and with hope, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit and washed in His blood. Let us pray together. Gracious God, we gather as a diverse people today. Some have been in a relationship with you for decades. Others is relatively new. Still others are exploring what that might mean. But whether it's for the first time or the next time, Send your spirit into our lives. Testify to our spirit of your love, of your grace, of the cross and of the empty tomb, of the forgiveness of sin and the promise of everlasting life. And let us claim it for our own as salvation comes by grace through faith and we can know the promise of everlasting life. So in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we make our prayer. Amen.